what struck one of the things that struck me was during the pandemic the government said we're all in this together and you know we're clearly not in it all together um but for me um you know society should be fair yes prisoners have done wrong um they've been given their sentence but um i don't think the public truly know what our prison system is like and it you know it leads on to big questions around rehabilitation is is prison effective does it work um the economical cost to it and i think it's 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 it, I, I would find it impossible not to emotionally invest in cases hi i'm naomi murphy and this is the locked up living podcast where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life we also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, six o'clock UK time for a fresh podcast. The today's guest is Dean Kingham. Dean has practised in prison law for around 15 years and he's often at the forefront of the main challenges protecting the rights of prisoners and is viewed as someone who works tirelessly to expose injustice and a lawyer who doesn't shirk from representing those who for whom antipathy is to be expected from the courts of the general public. In 2020, he was named Public Law Legal Aid Lawyer of the Year. He's trained in the main psychological risk assessment tools, so the HR20, the RSVP, which is a sexual psychological risk tool, and also the SAPROF, which is about protective factors. And it's pretty unusual, I think, for a lawyer to be trained in these, these assessments. Dean also holds the following roles and positions. He's committee member for the Association of Prison Lawyers since 2015, and he's the parole board lead for this group, and as a result, sits on the parole board user group. He's Vice Chairman of Progressing Prisoners, Maintaining Innocence, and he sits on the Criminal Cases Review Commission user group, and he's a council member for the Human Rights Charity Justice, and he also sits on the advisory panel for Inside Justice. So we've got an awful lot to cover here today in our conversation with you, Dean, but really looking forward to it. So welcome. Yeah, thank you for having me. Hi, Dean. Very nice to meet you. Thanks. Thanks a lot for coming along. How did you end up as uh, a solicitor specialising in prison law? Was this something you'd always wanted to do? I can't say it was. So I, I, um, I at, at degree level um, law, I wasn't sure whether I wanted to go down the solicitor route or barrister route. And I actually ended up going down the barrister route. But um, following completion of the bar vocational course, I, I gained employment at a criminal defence legal aid firm as a paralegal and predominantly practised crime. And they, they actually had a prison law contract and obviously criminal law and prison law go hand in hand. And I was asked to help out with some of their prison law cases. And it just really grew from there to the extent that in the end, I left that firm to take a role as a, as a um, solicitor solely dealing with prison law. Well, that's very interesting. So does that mean you gave up the barrister pathway altogether? Yes. Yeah, so um, I, in order to practice as a barrister, I was having to try to obtain pupillage. And as I was gaining more and more experience in, in the um, criminal solicitors firm, I, I realised that in actual fact, um, in the area of prison law, um, representing prisoners before the parole board, you don't need the same rights of audience as you would 
in the criminal courts or the civil courts. So I realised that in actual fact, what I could do was cross qualify as a solicitor and and represent people in that way. Right. Gosh, that sounds like quite a complicated uh, uh, pathway to me. But uh, anyway, glad you did it. So Naomi mentioned that um, you were named Legal Aid Lawyer of the Year in 2020. What, what led to that? Yeah, so throughout my time practicing prison law, what struck me is what, once the decision's taken, that shouldn't be the end of it. You should always be looking at whether there's potential grounds for challenge if the decision you feel doesn't quite meet the required standards, whether that's uh, rationality or lack of reasons, etc. And I always used to look to spot if there was judicial review challenges on the back of a decision. And over the years, um, launched a number of different judicial reviews. But in the build up to 2020, there was a number of prison law, prisoner rights cases that really went through the high court that I think really sort of set the foundation for winning that award. So um, there's the very well-known case of John Warboys where the victims sought to challenge the parole board's decision. Now, I didn't represent him for the parole process, but I did represent him for the judicial review process. And the reason I mention that case is obviously it caused a lot of public controversy and as a, as a re direct result of that decision the justice secretary at the time sought the removal of the parole chairman Nick Hardwick um, he basically said you are going to have to resign and on the back of that decision um, process we we took a case for a prisoner who was going in front of the parole board to say that that's a direct interference by the Ministry of Justice into the independence of the parole board um, and we were successful in obtaining a declaration from the High Court that the Ministry of Justice had interfered with the board's independence. And in between all of that, um, I was representing um, Charles Salvador, also known as Charlie Bronson, in a judicial review in respect of having the right to apply for a public parole hearing. Um, that has since been settled and the law has been changed to allow parties to apply for a public parole hearing and in actual fact um later on in december the first public parole hearing is going to take place what's it like for you um being involved as a lawyer representing some of these cases where there might be quite a lot of anger from the public um about about the rights of the prisoner yeah it's very unique um i was reflecting earlier actually on the judge's comments on um, for, for granting me or awarding me lawyer of the year and um, one of the comments was that I'm not going to win any popularity uh, contests <laughs> and um, certainly more recently you, I have seen an, an increase in anger from um, certain sections of the public but in order for us to have a fully functioning criminal justice system all parties need to be represented. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It, it's it's i mean i know i spoke naomi just too one of the uh, uh main psychologists who was involved with that case and it was certainly very challenging for 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 her and i think she was rather scorched by it it's it's quite risky work actually gone i would i was just going to agree i mean um for me um you know 
at the stage I'm at, I do tend to represent a number of notorious prisoners. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, um, those that go in front of the parole board have served their tariff, their minimum tariff. They're entitled to apply for release. And the test, you know, a lot is said about the parole board's test and the Secretary of State has been very vocal. Secretary of State for Justice that is, has been very vocal in saying they've moved away from a public protection test, but that's just rubbish. Now, the parole board's sole test is, is it necessary for the protection of the public that the individual remains confined? And we spend hours examining evidence in cases around is that test met or or does it does it remain necessary that they remain in prison? So ultimately, I, I sleep easy each night because I know the parole board um, anxiously scrutinise each individual case and don't take release decisions lightly. Oh, God. Well, I was just wondering whether you've ever felt at risk from the work that you do, Dean, because I have spoken to another lawyer who works in prison law, and that was one of the things that they identified, that they had to be quite careful about their family for fear of suffering kind of like retaliation for representing somebody in this way. Yeah, thankfully, I've never been subject to any direct retaliation, but I have had cases where um, disgruntled uh victims and understandably so there's a lot of emotion involved and you know I, I don't underestimate the harm caused by um, the offences that have commit, been committed but um, on one occasion I recall family members turning up at the prison with loudspeakers and um, police being called and threats being made etc um, but I've never been under any direct risk as such but it, it's just part, unfortunately it's just part and parcel of the job yeah, it, it seems to me, as you know, primarily an observer, that, that there are different levels of uh, emotion stirred up, some from direct relatives or contacts, but, but other uh, deeper levels of rage and emotion get stirred up in a wider sector of the uh, population, which seems to come from quite a sort of unconscious area, and that's in some ways the most frightening, I always think. Yeah, it doesn't help that the current government seems to use rhetoric that has the potential to cause serious harm to those um, that represent certain individuals. Um, the language could easily be toned down. Yeah. It's yeah. Quite, quite interesting, given quite a few of them have legal backgrounds as well. So you'd think there might be a bit more respect for the process rather than playing to the, the crowd, so to speak. In, indeed, but I think you only have to look at them, how they act in Parliament, in, in the House of Commons, to see that, um, you know, in any other professional workplace, that sort of behaviour wouldn't be allowed. Yeah. <clears throat> right. So, Dean, when I worked in, in prisons, um, we rarely had direct contact with uh, solicitors. I can remember one or two occasions over 20 years or so. Um, and, and solicitors often seem to be rather distant characters coming into the prison. They seem to have privileges of access um, and to somehow be on the other side, which was strange for me because I always thought I was on the right side, strangely enough. What, what, was, what was it from your point of view? What was it like? Well, as, as a party to the proceed, uh, parole proceedings, I, I always take the approach that it's we're all in it together, as it were. Um, so parole is inquisitorial. And oft, often I've, you know, from the outset, I always try to build the relationships with 
OMU depart offender management unit departments, um, prison psychologists, probation officers, because ultimately it's an inquisitorial process. And by sharing information about the case, um, it actually improves the hearing. But um, what I actually found was many witnesses to a parole hearing, such as probation, wouldn't actually want to talk to us. It laid very much view us as being on the other side. Um, and we was hitting that brick wall so often that in the end, I, I stopped um, I stopped um, reaching out as a matter of routine. But, you know, it's um, I do I do find from prison to prison, some prisons I have very good relationships with, for instance, the OMU departments, others um, clearly still view us as the other side. But um, given the nature of a parole proceeding, it's it's often benefits the the actual panel to have the parties talking in advance. You, you would think so. And it, it sounds from what you're saying as if you know, probably prisons didn't really appreciate, don't, or don't really appreciate the kind of role that you play as advocates. Is that the yeah, case? Yeah, I, I think so. And, and they very much view it as it's, it's them against us. Um, mm. And, you know, it's nice when you can have that breakthrough. Um, I, I, earlier in the year, for instance, um, I and some other solicitors were invited to HMP Coldenly um, for a life a day. Um, and there was different individuals in the system who were there um, and able to offer advice and guidance to prisoners serving life sentences. So, you know, that was that was a unique experience and one that shows the benefits of everybody um, working together. But I think many prisons just view us there as um, as um, a, a fawn in their side and um, individuals that will always look to challenge challenge their decisions, which often isn't the case. Sounds like an area that needs uh, developing, really. Of course, I mean, I do know that actually most prison junior governors have very little time. So the idea of forming a, uh, a relationship with a, uh, a series of solicitors it must be the last thing that they feel they've got time to do. Yeah, and I think that's one of the biggest hurdles at the moment is the fact that the prison system has deteriorated to such a degree that, I mean, it's just not, not able to work effectively. I'm just thinking about how defensive the system can be sometimes as well, that things end up going to a judicial review that perhaps it obviously shouldn't shouldn't need to get that far and maybe if there was better relationships and people were having conversations at an earlier stage it might be possible to come to a, you know a more agreeable outcome than having to get involved in big long lengthy litigation exactly right exactly right i mean um, it's always frustrating when you have to take a judicial review for for instance lack of reasons um, and not being able to understand a decision. And it's much easier if the parties can agree. And, you know, probably five to 10 years ago, we would find that um, the prison service or the Secretary of State would be much more amenable to agreeing to retake decisions. But now the approach very much seems to be, note they will stand by their decision and let the courts decide. So um, funny enough, I was just reviewing earlier today um, the number of judicial reviews that I've lodged in the last, say, three months. And um, I'm up to number 10, whereas I would say 
um before that in the last sort of 12 months or so i've maybe lodged one gosh and we don't like i I can i can safely say i don't like lodging um judicial reviews um unnecessarily um it's not you know we'd always look to resolve the issue rather than having to take up the court's time you ever get uh, involved with uh, joint enterprise uh, uh, issues yeah so um joint enterprise is something that i've been involved with for quite some time now because it really is um the law moving in the wrong direction and um, the system caught up with the fact that the law had moved in the wrong direction, but has done very little to actually correct the um, the scandal that has meant many individuals serving life sentences when they were not the actual individual res- in, um, responsible for committing the offence, merely uh, present. Yeah, it seems to have got stuck from what I was reading the yeah. other day. Yeah, that's that's right. And I mean, um, and I know we spoke about joint enterprise there, but the other big scandal is obviously the IPP sentence. Um, and again, it's it's evidence of the law moving in the wrong direction. But rather than correct the position for those subject to it, um, the the government unfortunately don't want to to correct that. But the, I think the the biggest positive with joint enterprise over the last few years is that. Um, a lot of campaigning has been um, launched to seek to persuade the Law Commission to review the criminal appeal system, and that includes joint enterprise, and they've finally agreed um, to do that. So that's that's the uh, the next big hope for those subject to joint enterprise. So I was wondering whether the people who you represent are always grateful for the for the service that you're providing or whether it can sometimes be challenging to build a relationship with them yeah i mean it, it can certainly be challenging but I, I have to say the the bulk of clients are very grateful um i think i think i was looking back over um over some of um the periods in which i've represented prisoners and, I, and funny enough i do have a core um, set of clients that I've assisted for a significant number of years um, and when, when I so when I was studying the bar vocational course I started to use legal language and really move away from um, myself um, I'm the first person in my family to go to university and I think the employment in the criminal firm when I first started really um, assisted me and um, has greatly assisted in build relationships with clients because I actually qualified as a police station accredited representative so um, I was often out at all all times of the day and night representing um, people that have been arrested at the police station and and there you 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 know you have very limited time to discuss a a large number of um, matters um, and convey what you want to convey and um, I realized actually you know rather than overcomplicate the language just be direct and be myself Um, so um, I think that really helped me build relationships Um, and of course you get the odd um, the, the odd client that doesn't want to accept advice or it's just difficult 
and that may be because of um, personality disorder or psychopathy. But um, by and large, I, I think I find it reasonably easy to build relationships with those that I represent. Imagine for some people as well, given how um, you know, we have quite a few people who really were quite isolated in terms of they were isolated when they were out in society. They didn't really have much contact with their family or their families had disowned them since they'd come to prison. And then probation officers changed frequently. So I imagine mm-hmm. for some some individuals, you may be you may represent a point of consistency that's there across a very long period of time where they may feel that you've got to know them better than an awful lot of other people have. Yeah, indeed. And um, so I represented Harry Roberts um, quite a few years ago now, and he had no one in the community. He'd served 48 years and um, I got him released and um, I've kept in contact with him on occasions. I've met up with him in the community. Um, and I, I, uh, one of the first prison cases I got involved with was for a chap at HMP Franklin's. Um, and he happened to be a West Ham fan and I'm a West Ham fan. And I, and he maintained his innocence of his offence. And he was category A and the category A team was sort of saying, you know, we, we envisage this is a scenario where he may be category A for life. And I said to him, when you when you get out, we will go to West Ham together. And of course, he he did progress through the system and he made it out. And I've been to I have actually been to West Ham with him. But that, that does give the sense of investing emotionally in your clients and caring about what happens to them, which I'm sure is invaluable to the to to your clients. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard not to. Um, I mean, for me, you know, the, I think what struck one of the things that struck me was during the pandemic, the government said we're all in this together and you know we're clearly not in it all together um but for me um you know society should be fair yes prisoners have done wrong um they've been given their sentence but um i don't think the public truly know what our prison system is like and it you know it leads on to big questions around rehabilitation is is prison effective does it work um, the economical cost to it and I think it's it's impo- it's it, I, I would find it impossible not to emotionally invest in cases. Thank you. So you, you're one of the few lawyers trained in psychological risk assessment tools Dean what difference do you think this makes to how you, appro- you approach your role if any? Yeah I think it certainly does so um, the reason I, I look to, um, to be trained in the risk assessment tools was because I was in parole hearings and I wasn't convinced that the predominantly prison psychologists were given correct evidence around the scoring of particularly the HCR20 assessment. Um, So I started to make inquiries about how I could get a copy of the manual and it uh, transpired that you had to train in the tool to get a copy of the manual. So I thought, well, great, I'll do that um not because I wanted to be adversarial in the approach to prison psychologists but it struck me that they they could give answers to me unchecked because I had no idea if what they were saying was right or not and yes on some parole panels you have psychologists or psychiatrists but not all so you know we had no way of knowing whether they were giving accurate evidence to parole panels um, and it is something that 
um, has benefited me. It's really got me to help uh, help me understand um, the psychological formulations. So it does mean that I, I find well, I, I think I'm a more effective advocate um, having access to the manuals if I need to use them at different points than back in the days that um, when I wasn't trained because um, I think in terms of the questioning it's much more focused. Yeah I can imagine that it, it could be really helpful although I'm not sure that everyone would probably view it in that way the fact that you've received the training. No no and back in the days pre-pandemic you know I was able to attend the prison um, and in the morning just pull out the manual put it on the desk um, and I think on some occasions that had the um, the benefit of focusing the mind of of the um, prison psychologist but you know I, I never trained in it in order to say you know you scored this as say mm -hmm. present why is that why is it not partially present it was more to understand the actual formulation and the overall um, conclusions to um, and I mean I guess really personality disorder um, you know and the, the the manuals are very structured in terms of you know if there's this evidence then it is like this or if not it's excluded but it seemed to me that the justifications were sometimes weak um, in in evidence and it was just a, another tool to be able to best represent clients. Thank you and you've mentioned the uh, the pandemic a couple of times how, how was your job and prison law impacted during the pandemic? Oh significantly so pre-pandemic I think on average I would spend one and a half days a week in the office the rest of the time I'd be all over the country visiting prisons um, and it was from a business perspective it was completely ineffective because as as um, prison lawyers we the the firms that we work for do not get we we can't claim for traveling to and from a prison um so you know the majority of prisons outside major cities are in the back end of nowhere and it often takes hours to get to and from so it was, you know, in effect, all we could claim for was the time we were seeing the client. So in a working day, you may be able to claim two hours of work. Um, but that aside, um, we um, would spend hours sitting in waiting rooms, um, waiting for clients to turn up. Um, and I was, because of my um, APL committee, role I was um, pretty much engaged with the parole board at the at the brink of the pandemic and I was actually um, on that Sunday before lockdown I was actually over in Cheltenham in a hotel for a hearing on the Monday and I was um, talking to Martin Jones the chief executive of the parole board on that Sunday evening saying you know, it's looking risky here are we going ahead on the Monday are we cancelling hearings and he was he was very proactive. He took the decision to cancel in-person hearings on that Monday. And it was later that day that um, the country was locked down. But um, I think really the pandemic for us has brought the prison service into the 21st century. You know, Pre-pandemic, very few prisons offered video links as an alternative means to see clients. Um, now, probably about 75% of prisons do. There's still a few that insist on in-person visits, but 
I think it's actually shown that there is a different way of working here. Um, for, for, for parole processes, you know, nearly every parole hearing was an in-person hearing and that had a knock-on consequence for the ability of the parole board to list hearings quickly and members are selected geographically. So, um, you know, the ability to list in, say, the East of England was restricted to the number of East of England members they had. Um, but the pandemic showed that actually, you know, now they've got a nationwide pool of members that could sit in on any hearing in the country because it was remote. I think critically for me, my main concern was whether the rates of release would deteriorate by having telephone or video link hearings. Um, and I was sceptical. I have to say I was sceptical at the start, but um, and the parole board quickly maximised telephone hearings whilst the technology was brought up to the relevant standards for them to maximise video link hearings. But now, you know, it's, it's rare for me to go into a prison. Um, I, I did a hearing earlier this week in person. Um, the panel was remote, but because of the client's um, physical health needs and mental health needs I, I went up to the prison to to be with him but it's you know I'd, I'd say now well, um, I'm near enough in the in the office every day of the week um, in terms of video links it's great because you can off, you can obviously schedule a number throughout the day and it I think realistically it enables me to stay in better contact with clients than before because all of that traveling time you know, if, if I was, I would regularly use the train, for example, I can't speak to a client when I'm on a, on a train. So um, they were having a um, difficult time getting hold of me. Yeah, it sounds a, a lot more, a lot more efficient. And did the pandemic conditions throw up um, different angles to the work that you were doing in terms of, you know, the living conditions for people in prison? Oh, yes um certainly did um so you know i think we we were concerned that um the conditions for prisoners would deteriorate significantly but of course we was mindful of the fact that as a as a society we were all subject to covid conditions but the covid restrictions went on much longer in custody and what we what we saw was some prisons pre-COVID already had poor regimes. And what I mean by that was subject to long periods of bang up behind their door. As a result of the pandemic, 23 hour a day bang up became the norm. And we were concerned that it, that it may stay like that post the pandemic. But the the bigger issue for us was around prisoners access to their families during the pandemic, access to risk reduction work um, and courses. So, you know, we carefully monitored that and looked at whether there was any sort of challenges against the prison system, not more aimed at the government and the way in which the government was handling the pandemic on behalf of prisoners. So, for instance, um, there's there's a chap at HMP Woodhill who I represent who you know the the prison inspectorate has been damning about Woodhill in the sense that they haven't got enough staff they're not able to run proper regimes and the chap can't access psychology work to the anywhere near the same level as we was anticipating which has a knock-on consequence for parole um, but it's raised deeper questions around how the government 
have managed the prison service and the system for a number of years. So, you know, wider questions. Obviously, at the moment, there's many professions that are looking at striking and industrial action. Well, prison officers have been going through this for years. And the key example at Wood Hill is the rates of pay are so bad because it's at Milton Keynes is a um, quite an affluent area. They can't retain or recruit enough staff. So staff are being brought in from other areas of the country, which has a knock on a consequence for those areas. So from that perspective, it really does um, prov- it really does raise big questions for, for the government. Yeah, I think it often seems as though because governors are seen uh, keen to want to make it work, that they'll beg, borrow and steal from all over mm. to to make it work. But in some ways, what that does is conceal how bad the problem the problem is. Whereas actually, if they were if there was more openness about how bad it was, it might have actually put pressure to change things sooner. I think. Yeah, I think what strikes me is each prison has an annual report published by the independent monitoring board. Um, would they prisons have regular inspections from the chief inspector of prisons um but nothing ever seems to change um it's just a a a downward spiral and and it's not just the prison service it's the probation service um you know we're, we're at a stage now where um some probation officers are not attending parole hearings because they don't have um the time to do that um, directions are not being complied with because they're not they don't have sufficient time um, I mean it's just it goes back to the wider point about a fully functioning system but um, whenever I'm asked about the prison system and and this part of the criminal justice system I have to my my honest answer is all roads lead back to the government because you know this part of the system does cost money and they need to invest and take appropriate decisions. But equally, you have to balance that against the fact that it also costs a significant amount per year to keep each prisoner detained. And um, there's waste in the system, such as, you know, if if a prisoner is waiting, I mean, I've, I've, I was asked today about a particular prisoner and he's waited a, in excess of a year for his parole hearing. So let's say he gets released, he can claim compensation for the delay. So the parole board will be paying out compensation to him, rightly, because the delay is purely as a result of resources. And if he had his parole hearing earlier, he would have been released earlier. But, you know, that's money that could go into the system, improving improving the system. Yeah, I'm sure there's quite a few ways in which there could be efficiencies Mm. and it's hard to it's hard to locate blame with the system itself because they're working with the the sort of like under-resourced um in the under-resourced way where they have been for a bit like the way you see um people talking about the nhs at the moment Mm -hmm. that ultimately if you run down a service um it's difficult to provide something that's functional yeah which takes us quite nicely to the next question of how does the justice secretary impact on your job and has this changed over time <laughs> it, it varies very much from justice secretary to justice secretary and I, I can't remember how many justice secretaries we've had in the last say four or five years but what I would say is it's a significant number 
my my own view is that the government don't see the the role of justice secretary as being significantly important to the extent that they, they there's no continuity so the best one of the best examples i can give is obviously um following the war boys judgment um there was pressure put on the chair of the board to um resign um that secretary, justice secretary went um as a result of the war boys judgment um, there was a root and branch review into the parole board to see whether it was still functioning effectively. Um, just as that was published, well, whilst that was being considered by the Ministry of Justice, there was a change in the Justice Secretary. So we lost Robert Buckland and we inherited Dominic Raab. And if, if you read the root and branch review, it very much feels like part one and part two. And reading between the lines, it feels like Robert Buckland was going to suggest the probable goes in one direction, but in actual fact, Dominic Raab then came in and chose a different direction. So part of the report reads like the parole board will um, move to within the tribunal service, be a fully functioning court. Um, and then um, part two is very much Raab saying they're not fit for purpose. I need to make structural changes and I'm going to introduce all of these new powers that for myself to interfere with the parole process. Um, then obviously, because um, of the change of prime minister, Raab was moved on. We then had Brandon Lewis for probably a month or so, maybe a little bit more. Um, and now we're back to Dominic Raab. Um, so I think for me, the, the parole board, in law is a sort of quasi court they're a court in name but they don't have the same powers as any other court but the key is just like the judiciary are independent the parole board are independent and we have a justice secretary who's almost using the parole board like it's his plaything um so you know over the summer introduced significant changes to the parole system without any consultation. So the, the parole board were not aware of any of the proposed changes. And it was just, um, you know, published online on the government website. So, you know, I was in a hearing, for example, where the test for open conditions had been changed that day. And at the start of the hearing, the, the chair of the um, panel introduced the previous test but in actual fact, because it was the, the day um, of the implementation, it was a new test. And it was just, you know, it just it's just almost like kangaroo court style. It's, it's bonkers that we would have a, a justice secretary that um, would, would make such wholesale changes to the system without any prior notice or consultation. And I think the, the key one at the moment is that none of the professional witnesses that represent him so the prison offender manager the community of probation officer or prison psychology can make recommendations to the parole board there's like quite a contemptuous way to treat people that are working within the system doesn't it as well as the people who are on the receiving end of of justice um within all of that but also it strikes me as a bit of a recipe for um, error to be made because actually if things change in that kind of way there isn't you know if you don't have a change management process then it's hard for everybody to keep track of what changes have have been implemented isn't 
Yeah, I think ultimately it has the potential to backfire on on his intended outcome. So, for for example, um, probation officers are expert risk assessments uh, assessors. That's part and parcel of their core day to day job. You know, they've been told they're not entitled to make recommendations. Prison psychologists for years have been making recommendations, and one one of the things that hasn't been tested as such at the moment is an expert's overriding duty is to the court. Um, that duty overrides any obligation that the person has um, in terms of, for instance, their employers. So it really puts the psychologists at risk, I would say, of complaints because, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's guidance that's been given to them. The probe would accept that witnesses are not going to be given recommendations but I mean it just seems for me it just seems laughable now that um, you know the Secretary of State in 99% of cases chooses not to be present in any form or represented yet those that are representing him and providing information to the uh, to the parole board cannot say what their view is on whether the test is met and you know in hearings we dance around the issues i've had to try and think up some ingenious ways to try and get the witnesses to to give their recommendation and you know i did a hearing recently where the the judge said um you know um they're not going to answer that and i said well i've I've got to try because in some cases you know i am getting away with that question um and i have to try on behalf of the client but for me it just seems that it's a further undermining of the parole board process. Yeah, it seems it seems quite uh, nonsensical, really. But m- moving on, Dean, people seem to find it easier to accept punishment if it seems fair, proportionate and transparent. How transparent do you think the processes are that prisoners are subjected to? And equally, I suppose, you know, what about the principles of fairness and proportionality? Are those always upheld? Yeah, so how transparent is the prison system? Uh, well, it's not. It's not transparent at all, but um, the parole process is now transparent. And and that is a result of initially the war boys judgment, which led uh, victims to be able to request summaries of decisions. Um, And it's interesting when we talk about transparency, because um, it was it was a prisoner that actually led the system, the parole system to be changed, to open it up to the public. the, the government initially resisted. They defended the judicial review and said there was no need for the system to be opened up. Um, but once once permission had been granted to say that the claim was arguable, they then accepted that they should undertake a public consultation and obviously the system's been changed. But you know, it's not going to be the case that every parole hearing is public. But I do think the opening up of the system inappropriate cases really will enable the public to understand the work of the parole board because ultimately um, the parole board's reputation was significantly damaged as a result of the war boys judgment but what's been lost in that is the the high court did not say the decision to release um, Mr war boys was irrational itself it was the fact that there was information that they could have obtained and maybe should have obtained as part of the risk assessment um, that led the decision to be quashed so 
the Secretary of State came out criticising the parole board and, and that has really sort of sparked the bandwagon for uh, Dominic Raab moving forward. But at all points, the Minister of Justice seems to do its very level best to um, maintain the prison system as a secretive place where you know decisions are taken that are not fair and not proportionate. Um, you know, I um, I do a lot of work with prisoners where you know they're given no reasons for decisions or policies are not followed. Um, you know, mandatory frameworks where you know uh, it said the prison must do X and it's and it's not done, um, and it has very real implications for the prisoners. But um, for me, prisons should be opened up more so we actually see what goes on inside a prison. Now, um, one of the public parole hearings that is coming up, there is a documentary being made about that case. And I know from the parole board's perspective, they have been involved, and to be fair, the Ministry of Justice have, in a series about parole. But there's so much more to be done here because it's you don't prisoners as much as the public may not like this prisoners do not lose their rights as a result of their incarceration and if you want someone to be rehabilitated i would suggest that you need to treat them fairly or perfectly except firmly you know they're in there for punishment um, but they're also in there to be rehabilitated and um, it was, I think it was Nelson Mandela that said something along the lines of you don't truly know a nation until you've stepped inside the jails. Um, governors are often overstretched. Um, staff are often junior and don't understand the prison service instructions or the frameworks. Um, you know, complaint responses are often so ridiculously poor that it actually leads to more issues. You, I often read complaint responses and just think, why can't you just answer the complaint in a meaningful way? So, Dean, do you think some prisoners uh, fare better against the system than others? And are there groups of prisoners who get a much tougher time than others? Yeah, indeed. So the, the obvious groups that get a tougher time are those that maintain their innocence and sex offenders. Um, those that um get a rougher end of the deal are those that often are intelligent know their rights know what the policies say about their rights and look to assert their rights um if 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 you're that type of prisoner then you can often be at lockerheads with the prison and um it it does very much feel to me from experience that in those types of cases, the system will go out of its way to get the better of them. Um, and what I mean by that is not follow procedures and an engineer situations to try to um, damage the prisoner's credibility, whether that's through, you know, as a response to litigation or complaints, etc. But um, sex offenders um, often get it worse. Those that maintain their innocence, you know, for years, you can't reduce your risk if you're in denial. But, you know, we have to accept that our criminal justice system doesn't always get it right. We know from the, mis the famous miscarriages of justice cases, Barry George, um, 
the Guildford Four, the Birmingham Six, that there are, you know, loads of other examples that there are people in prison that are genuinely innocent. Yeah, in fact, I think sometimes there's an actual prejudice against those who are maintaining their innocence and they're denied access to psychological or so-called psychological courses, for example. Yeah, so um, I've always done a lot of work in the high secure estate um, and um, probably about five years or so ago, might be slightly longer, we, we looked at a potential legal challenge for discrimination. And that, that was premised on the basis that um, those that admit their guilt are able to access accredited offending behaviour programmes, that those that don't are not able to because it's a prerequisite that you have to admit guilt. Um, and we, we, we served the pre-action challenge and the, the government came back and said, aha, uh, we're not actually discriminating because we're we're sort of in the process of changing the suite of programs where in actual fact we're moving away from admitting guilt and those that maintain their innocence can participate and it's really brought us up to to date because the psychological research evidence suggests that in actual fact maintaining innocence or denial doesn't increase risk and in many cases it can be a protective factor but it's taken years for the prison service to recognise that and catch up with the psychological research evidence. But it does mean that those that maintain their innocence are able to progress through the system. Thank you. I mean, that obviously links up to some extent with the Progressing Prisoners Maintaining Innocence project. Can you tell us how that works? Yeah, certainly. So they support a, a significant number of prisoners who maintain their innocence and um, they're somewhat of a campaign group because they've been campaigning um, for the system to recognise that maintaining innocence doesn't automatically increase risk and you can't just keep someone in prison because they maintain their innocence um, and you know they've been an important group that have helped um, get us to where we are now. So they're an actual pressure group, are they? Yeah, they are. I, I think it's a balance between a pressure group and um, uh, supporting those in prison that maintain innocence. Thank you. So what, how, how, how can things change for the better, do you think? I, I would really like to see a cross-party, open, public commission of some form where we truly exact we go back to basics we look at what do we want our system to achieve because from from start to end it's a mess so you know um the the criminal barristers have just been on strike the criminal courts are underfunded takes years to go in front of a of a jury um you know and, and from for the very outset to the very end, it's a complete mess. And I think this has been going on now for far too long. We need an open, honest debate because there is the possibility that um, the Tory government won't be um, won't be our, our next government. And if Labour come in, um, really, we want continuity. The system 
deserves continuity. Victims deserve continuity. Um, there's so much that could be improved in the system. But I think what, what strikes me, and I often have this discussion with colleagues and friends, is when it's, it's a sad indictment of our country that ministers and secretary of states seemingly often have no experience of the fields, uh, of the areas in which they're, they're ministers or secretaries of the states. It's rare that they actually do. Um, and it's like me, you know, it's like me all of a sudden getting a job um, as a, say, as an NHS consultant. Got no idea what I'm doing, um, but, but there I am being tasked with different things. So they leave a mess. I mean, you know, Chris Grayling was is widely known as failing Grayling. And he was Justice Secretary where he, when he tried to sell offending behaviour programmes to Saudi Arabia. The majority of the offending behaviour programmes, um, he was advocating selling are no longer in existence because uh, they've been decommissioned, because there's issues around how effective they are in reducing risk. But I think most importantly with him, he destroyed the probation service and we are still dealing with the fallout now. And millions, if not billions, is wasted. And there's no accountability from, from that regard, um, but the system pays for it for years. So I would like to see an open, honest debate. I think the parole board need to be stronger. They need a much stronger voice. Um, you know, they've, they've, they're almost like an abused spouse with the Ministry of Justice. They've, they've um, you know, they're, they're meek in that regard. You know, they, they haven't got a voice. And it's, it's so frustrating because a lot of the faults with the system lay with the Ministry of Justice and the government. Um, so they need to really come out and vocalise and stand up to the, to the government. Yeah, very well put. Thanks, Dane. If you think about it, prison hasn't really changed substantially since we first started putting people in prison. And I think, you know, there's a, if you were looking to, it depends what, you know, what are we trying, what purpose are we trying to serve via prisons? Are we serving um, the, you know, the purpose of vengeance uh, for society or are we trying to cut crime? Because I don't think, I don't think we're cutting crime by putting, uh, well, I don't think that's the best way to cut crime by putting people in prison. And so having some central commission where people feed in evidence from all sorts of sources might re result in a very different, different looking um, approach to justice and, and offending, won't it? Yeah. And, and this links back to the sort of changes that I was proposing because, um, you know, it strikes me that it's very wrong that someone with substance misuse issues, for example, can get better access and more ready access to substances in custody than they can in the community. If you've got mental health issues, um, then you're in trouble in prison because, you know, there's some very good mental health um, care in some prisons, but equally it's, there's some very bad. And the reality is it costs much more per year to keep someone detained in a mental health unit than it does in um the prison system but it, you know it kind of goes back to what i was saying about the parole board the parole board's rate of serious reoffending is 0.5 percent 
So what I mean by that is um, those that are released by the parole board that go on to commit a serious offence. We're not talking theft. We're, you know, we're not talking um, public order offences. We're talking robbery, uh, GBH, um, serious harm offences. 0.5%. Thousands of prisoners go in front of the parole board each year. That statistic, as a member of the public, I feel like I can sleep easy. And that's why I mentioned that earlier when I said I sleep easy because I know the parole board works. Now, 0.5% is the system working. There is no Western world um, parole system that has a better rate as far as I understand. And that the, the very work of the parole board is looking into a crystal ball, as it were, to future crimes. You know, this is almost film territory, isn't it? Do we keep people locked up for fear mm-hmm. of future crimes? Uh, I think it, I think it might have been Vanilla Sky was the film. Um, that's the system working. And, and, you know, you have high profile cases like Colin Pitchfork who was released, you can argue till you're blue in the face whether he should have been released or not. Um, But he was in an open establishment at the point the parole board released him. So he was well on the path to being released and at some point inevitably would stand to be released because he'd been interacting with the public. He was recalled and the arguments um, resurfaced about whether the parole board got it right to release him. But what hasn't been said is... He was recalled not for further offending, but for compliance, for breaching license conditions. So that risk management plan worked because he was pulled back to custody for non-compliance before an offence was committed. So that is the system working. And, you know, I have clients that are recalled three or four times on their life sentences, not for offending, but for compliance, missing an appointment, um, you know, um, being laid back that's the system working yeah you know that is that is exactly what we want but um the the system is flawed in so many ways in that regard because um does does a sentence given our current prison system what percentage of prisoners come out better than when they went in I would say it's very few and that's as a member of the public that should be concerning but equally those that go in front of the parole and released the chances of reoffending serious reoffending are so low now if you think about the reoffending rate for those that don't go in front of the parole board it's much much higher mm-hmm. so I would always advocate the parole board releasing someone as opposed to relying on the Ministry of Justice to release someone. Thank you. And we've, we're, we're kind of running to the end of time now, Dean. Just one one final question, really. You know, you you joked earlier about the fact you were never going to win any popularity contest doing the work that you do. You're hearing um, really awful stories in terms of some of the, you'd be exposed to the, the details of the offences that people have committed, but also then seeing how, people survive um, within the system. How does this work impact on you and what steps do you take to ensure that you stay healthy whilst you do this work? 
yeah, I've been reflecting on this a fair amount, actually, because um, I'm uh, 40 next year and I've been thinking about well-being and health. And I think over the years I've, I've neglected my own health in the sense that um, there is so much work as a prison lawyer. Um, I would work incredibly long hours um, or even during a working day, not leave the desk, say, for grabbing some lunch for example um eating lunch at the desk and then you know that's that's the end of it and um i think it's important that um you obviously take exercise whether that's a, a walk or go to the gym but um i think the key things for me around my own well-being is comedy um i am someone that watches a lot of comedy and i think that's a, an escapism for me um and to balance out the 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 information that i read on a day-to-day -day basis which can be very harrowing um but um i am a west ham fan and I'm, I'm a season ticket holder and i think um that in some way impacts because i can well, obviously not at the moment because the world cup's on but um i can go over there i can have a shout i can you know um lose some of that stress that's built up um, so there's a mixture of ways for me, but I think it's something that as lawyers, we're not very good at monitoring. Mm -hmm. um, and you can often fall into the trap where um, you you sit at a desk all day, you travel by car and you don't actually um, ensure that you uh, stay physically healthy. Yeah, I, th I really love your responses there. And actually, I think the two things that you highlighted about comedy and also yeah, going to football matches and shouting and both of those work in a way that is functional for laughter and and shouting is, is functional for the vagus nerve in terms of calming our our nervous system so you can see that both of those could be could be healthy and I personally really love the comedy uh, one as well as the football yeah. so yeah so I mean yeah. I used to you know I used to do yoga a lot but I think since I mean since the pandemic I just haven't um, but I always found that to be such a great de-stressor. What always amazes me that lawyers don't have clinical supervision, actually, because I think the work that you're doing, you know, processing the emotions mm. about that some of the stories that you that you hear, I'm, I'm mm. surprised that that hasn't been made part of not just the criminal and, and prison lawyers, but obviously the lawyers that work in child and family cases and yeah. personal injury probably see some pretty pretty awful stories as well. But yeah. thank you so much for coming on today and giving us all, all your time and sharing all your knowledge no with us. Thank you very much yeah. for having me. Thanks very much, Dean. That was uh, really interesting. And you mentioned Vanilla Sky, which I haven't seen, um, but I do know another film called Minority Report, which that's is about the film that that, That's the one I was thinking of. Actually, locking people up for future crimes. Yeah. yeah, they both got Tom Cruise in. Yes, yeah, it was Minority Report. I was thinking of actually. Yeah, 